these children are going to the most glamorous of all summer camps, Camp Mohawk. There's a two-year waiting list, and every child has to be voted in. On top of all that, it costs $1,000 a week to go to Camp Mohawk. The question is, is it worth $1,000 a week? It sure is. It's the best darn camp there is. Well, are you connected with Camp Mohawk? Well, I think so. I'm the program director, Jerry Aldini. Well, how do you justify $1,000 a week? Well, we have some special programs. Uh, we're doing Shakespeare in the Round again this year, of course. Uh, our political roundtable, Henry Kissinger, will appear. Yasser Arafat is going to come out, spend a weekend with the kids, just rap with them. That's amazing. And the kids wanted animals, so this year each camper will stalk and kill his own bear in our private wildlife preserve. Are you sure the children can, uh, can hack that? We'll see. Glop Culture Podcast is brought to you by Encounter Books. Our featured title this week is Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes by Michael Rubin. We'll be talking more about this title later in the show, but in the meantime, you can get this book or any Encounter title for 15% off list by going to Encounter Books. Use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. Well, welcome to the Pod Culture Podcast. Uh, this the, second the, week pod, the pod culture podcast, the glop culture podcast. <laughs> all about your, all about various cultures that exist in you. Yeah, there are many cultures. That's Rob Long speaking from a hipster hotel room in yeah. uh, in in New York City, just blocks away from me, John Podhortz, in my unhipster garment center office, and Jonah Goldberg in Washington D.C. Hi, Jonah. Hi, John. Hi, Rob. Uh, Hey, J- J- uh, Jonah. I, John, I did not know you were that. You were this close. Like, for some reason, I imagined you some kind of Upper West Side kind of dusty place. No, I am. I sit atop. I sit mm-hmm. in an office formerly uh, manned by the uh, leather company, um, uh, the name of which now escapes me. Something Mark. Uh, two floors above Al Sharpton's National Action Network. <laughs> Uh, and uh, 14 floors above uh, Chadick and Rosen, fine, <clears throat> fine loose uh, fab- fabric for uh, making your own upholstery. Um, here in the beautiful garment center just south of Times Square, Rob, I'd like to. I am. I am. I am at the Ace Hotel, hipster hotel here in, uh, on 29th and Broadway, which is uh, I, I, there is such a thing as too much. Uh, yes, now, I went to have – Rob and yeah. I had lunch at the Ace Hotel yesterday. Oh, right, so jump right in. <laughs> we don't want to talk about our, our – jump right in, Jonah. What, what do you have to say about my hotel? Anything? Uh, really, so so much less than nothing. I mean, <laughs> no, but I was just going to say that the, the lobby of the Ace Hotel, which looks a little like an old YMCA, was like the um, uh, was like the, the cast of extras from HBO's Girls. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sitting, sitting, rows and rows of uh, tattooed twenty-somethings on uh, MacBooks, uh, doing whatever it is the twenty-somethings without jobs sitting on MacBooks do. I did want to go. I did want to go and borrow some El Cheapo kind of like just ten-year-old uh, yeah, a PC uh, laptop and open it up ostentatiously. Um, <laughs> No, it's one of those huge so, ones that weighs oh, 42 pounds. Yeah. You know, uh, hi, would you not sit next to me? I mean, or just like you know, just to see how, how bad it would get. Uh, and it would a, get. You know, Pew, the Pew uh, survey just did this big survey of millennials and their views and their opinions and how, you know, they don't go to church and they don't believe in anything and they don't like either party and they don't like authority and they don't like institutions and I'm looking around that room and I'm thinking about the TV shows that I've seen that they're in and re- read some of the things that they've written. And you know what? Like, it's time for them to grow up. Seriously. Yeah. They're sitting there with their crappy clothing and their stupid tattoos and their and their whatever it is they're writing on their Mac. Get off my lawn, screams j It's time for them to get a job and – Clean up and stop whining. Well, about here's how what I want good enough for them. That's here's what I, what I want to talk about. Here's what I want to talk about. They have jobs. They're stupid jobs, maybe, but they're like blogging and whatever else, and little media things and uh, zines, and I don't know what all these people do, but they have jobs. 
Zines? They're not jobless. Whatever, they have jobs, right? Zines is a 90s word. <laughs> well, that's, that's as good as you're going to get from me. Zines <laughs> um, were actually printed. Somebody actually had to like figure out how to lay them yeah. out and take them to no, a they didn't. No, they didn't have to. They printed it on their computer. In WordPress. They did. I mean, these are like I. I don't think that uh, they're unemployed. I think this is the new workforce. This is the forty-three percent, as we talked about yesterday, uh, um, uh, John. That that this is part of the forty-three percent that work. Now these guys are underemployed. Under twenty-nines are underemployed. What is the what is the unemployment rate for under twenty-nines now? It's like. I don't know. Let's look it up while we're talking. 10% or something? It's huge. That's, but these guys are employed. I mean, Jonah, you go around to, to, to colleges all the time. Yeah. Um, how many hipster conservatives are there? There are a few. In fact, I, I don't want to name names, but I saw a few at your house. Uh, That's true. <laughs> the last time I was there before the... The ricochet meetup thing at your house, and I was amazed at. I, I wanted to ask one of them, and I don't want to. I don't want to get him in trouble because I like the guy. As a conservative, I find the amount of effort it takes to cultivate hipsterness baffling. I mean, just the 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 clothes, uh-huh. you know, there's sort of studied, unstudied look, right? I mean, it's this. It's 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 a, it's a uniform like any other. But anyway, I. You see, you, you don't see that many, but I mean, I mean, young conservatives are still, you know, to one extent or another, part of the mainstream culture, and and hipsterness is kind of like a mainstream culture thing for for young people. I mean, it, I reject all of it. But. It is ever thus, you know. I'm thinking about how in the twin in in uh, uh, twenty years ago in the '90s, you know, there was that revelatory uh, movie Swingers, which was all about how. You know, twenty somethings in LA were all affecting the garb mm-hmm. of zoot suit. You know, sort of a combination of the '40s zoot suit and and Frank Sinatra. You know, uh, live at the Sands um, together <laughs> as their as their look. And in the you know in the in the '60s, it was all that hippie nonsense. And in the earlier '90s, it was junk clothes from Woolworths. You know. Uh, <clears throat> And you know it's ever thus that people in their twenties in the United States are, are are always looking to brand them to come up with a look that will give them a generational definition. And this is what I mean when I say it's time for these people to go out and get a job and do something serious in their lives because this poll, this Pew poll, is interesting because of the degree to which it indicates that they are motivated by nothing. I mean that large numbers of them are motivated by nothing. They're not getting married. <clears throat> Right. They don't believe right. in, you know, they have no religion. They don't believe in institutions. You know, they're suspicious of the political parties. They're they're all like bobbing up and down like boys in the water. And and this is, seems from this poll, I'm not even talking about what they're like one-on-one, but it's sort of generationally <laughs> as though they are completely unmoored. You know, they're unmoored or, from anything. Or has this always <clears throat> been the case? I mean – isn't no, this always the case with young people? Of people no, because young people, you know, used to get married and have kids. You know, it's not like they didn't get married in their twenties and have kids. So now it used to be a cliche that young people were idealistic, right? I mean, that, and the cliche was based on some truth. These yeah, kids are idealistic. They're nihilistic. No, they're nihilistic, or they're or they're or they're apathetic, or they've now they're disappointed. They're disappointed in Obama. Well, my, they don't like the yeah. Republicans. Okay, and they're and they and they're mad at their parents, and they don't like. You they know, sound like they, they, don't they sound like, like the Tea the Party. They sound like the Tea Party, except for the religion thing. But even when the Tea Party started, it wasn't really religious. It wasn't really conservative. Just mad. But it, it was, was old, patriotic. Old, I mean, there, there was a, there was a deep strain of patriotism in the Tea Party, and you know, but. Not only was this not ever less in the sense that you're talking about, Rob. It's when Ron, when when John said it was ever thus about kids trying to differentiate themselves. That's not really true either. You know, Daniel Borston has a great essay about this somewhere about how it was really the rise of of mass textiles and the wealth that came from capitalism that allowed kids, young people, to create a separate culture from their parents. Mm-hmm. It used to be in America that the kids wore the hand-me-down clothes from their parents. And their older siblings, and they they dressed like little adults, and, and they liked it. <laughs> well, I don't know if they liked it. I don't know. And they liked it. I'm not saying it was better, but this but youth culture, as we understand it, and particularly this sort of alienated hipster culture with the sort of urban outfitter Bolshevik look, 
you know, where you pay thirty-two fifty for a T-shirt that says you don't believe in capitalism. Um, uh, that stuff is pretty new, and um, I, you know, I, I don't think that I, I personally look. I, I, I hated youth politics when I was a young person. You know, when I came to Washington as a Gen Xer, there are all these guys who you and gals who used the Gen X BS as a as an argument for affirmative action for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they played on the hippie nostalgia of baby boomers and said, oh, you've got to hire young people because they see things so differently. And baby boomers, ba- liberal baby boomer nostalgists in the man- mainstream media were idiots and they fell for it. And so they started appointing all these Gen X correspondents and all the rest. And so, you know, these days we're doing the same thing with the millennials. Um, and there was a lot of existential angst with the Gen Xers, too. So, I mean, I agree that this is not a wholly new thing, but um, – it does oh. seem to me that these kids oh. are are dif- the difference yeah. is a degree that has become a difference in kind with these kids. Okay, well i yeah. i uh, have to I have to declare myself of the three of us on the on the on the on the uh, podcast here the expert because I am staying at the Ace Hotel <laughs> and they're all they're all right downstairs from me and um uh, they don't seem nihilistic at all. In the, in, in, the, in the in the glow of their their MacBooks, they yeah, they not. seem busy. They seem busy and you know engaged and maybe stupid. And they dress, you know, they they look they all look like they're trying to be uh, you know gold miners from Sutter's Mill at some point. They're all dressed like that, um, uh, identically. Um, but uh, I don't know. They seem they seem engaged. Maybe they don't I seem don't engaged the way nihilistic. we want them to. I don't think they're nihilistic. I think that they are. I think that they have grown up and they are now come, they've come to adulthood in a world that tells them not to believe in anything except maybe the environment. I mean, they and they therefore are in a position where, as I say, they seem quite but all unmoored. Right. And, and see- unmoored, unmoored. This is a if there's a generational crisis, it is a crisis of sort of belief and conviction and ties to something larger than themselves. And that is something that will resolve itself over time because people will not live like that forever. You know, they, that is where, you know, religious awakenings come from and that sort of thing. And that part of what happened in the 70s after the 60s was, you know, this, this explosion of, of, uh, of born-again, you know, Christianity in a lot of places from people who had lived – you know, an unsatisfying life through the sixties and found faith as one way to infuse their lives with something larger than just the me decade, you know, now, now who knows what it is. And, you know, it seems harder, I think, to, to create you know, faith where there is none, but we, we should call it when, when, when old people, when three old people tried to understand the young people or tried to appeal to them in some way, and sell stuff to them, whether it's an ideology or it's a, a product or it's a um, you know a T-shirt or it's uh, Obamacare. You know, there was always that element of an old person, you know, uh, trying to be young, trying to be hip. We used to call it like it was the old sketches that Bob Hope would do, even in the seventies, way later than they were necessary. Bob Hope in a hippie wig, where in his specials he would put on a hippie <laughs> with, outfit with Joey with Joey Heatherton, yeah, as, uh, as, uh, the, uh, as the free yeah. love chick. But they, who did these up until seventy seven? Right when were, you couldn't find that when that person had, as you said, either become born again or like gone back to college and is now an accountant. Well, Jeffrey, um, in my in my own defense. For just two seconds here, because I, I, I do exi- you know when I go on these college campuses, I do exactly the opposite of what you're saying. I ridicule youth politics. <laughs> I, I tell these kids that that you know, as I wrote in my book, that youth politics is by far the cheapest, lamest form of identity politics there is. Right? I mean, at least identity politics for blacks or Asian or women, there is something real there, some phenomenal status there. You take pride in simply because you, your parents gave birth to you in a specific year as if that was an accomplishment on your, of your own is pathetic. And so is the whole talk about the greatest generation, right? I mean, the people who are great and impressive are the guys who stormed Normandy. But say you were in prison for, for mopery or something when other guys were, were, <laughs> were storming Normandy. Am I supposed to have special respect for you because you're a member of the same demographic cohort? As the guys who took Anzio, I mean, it's ridiculous. But why is it that late capitalism got got so enthralled with the notion of serving youth and talking to youth? Why? 
and you made this you 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 uh, you alluded to this and what you said about you know urban outfitters and American apparel and that it's be- not because they're so solid and knowledgeable and wise and full. Right. It's because right. they're gullible. They're gullible. It's because they yeah. fall for it. So they fall for, you know, the Shepherd Fairy Hope Obama poster. They well, fall they, for right. we are the ones we have been waiting well, for. They fall for marketing pitches. It is people over the, and, you know, the, and they'll the buy anything. They'll yeah. buy any toothpaste, right? They yeah, they yeah, haven't right. been cheated enough in their lives by hucksters to know that most people are are, are just kind of treating them as a market. So they right. believe in this. Which is why, you know, which is why when it, in the nineties, when when people were doing television in the nineties, those of us who were unfortunate or fortunate enough to be doing that, um, the eighteen to thirty five demographic suddenly became the most important one there is. Not it didn't always start that way. It really started in nineteen ninety three or four, four really. And I can remember being having a show up. Uh, uh, at NBC, a pilot in, in contention NBC, and there were two such programs. Uh, ours was about uh, four guys who lived to- five guys who lived together in an apartment, and there's another show at the same time about six single people in New York. And um, I remember we were both up, and, and the network is very clear. We would never put both of these shows on because uh, young people don't watch TV like this, and um, that is not an attractive demographic for us. And we were taken aside by the president of the network and the head of the uh, comedy development, and they, they told us very clearly, you need to have some middle-aged people on your show. Because middle-aged, wow. a middle-aged woman especially, a middle-aged well, – this is 1994 – a middle-aged woman – it controls what appears on the family television set. So this is 20 years ago, um, almost exactly. And um, we thought, oh, well, you know, we don't want to, you know, we're not trying to be exclusive here. Yeah, well, so we, we put in a neighbor character. We cast a very, very funny actress to play it. She's sort of a major role. And the other team doing another very young people in New York show, they said, uh, go to hell. That's not the show. You're idiots. The young people uh, do watch TV. Uh, and they did and not. That was a little show called Friends. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, was part a, of what, just part of the a giveaway little there. show called Friends. Just a little flop. And when they put it on, NBC didn't think it was going to work. Part of the giveaway there is when you said the executive said the middle-aged mom controls the family TV, and by the early 1990s, there weren't there wasn't a family TV. Right. Kids had their own TVs, right? And they could control what they were watching much more than they could have. Earlier. Yeah, exactly. But one exactly. of the reasons that this happened, this is what you're saying, Rob, is – and I remember this very well from around the same time that you were doing that. I, I spent a year and a half as a television critic and there was this great irony, which is that uh, CBS was then as now or you know, was, had more viewers than any other network. But it was increasingly – but it, NBC was – wildly more uh, successful financially, uh, largely because of the Thursday night lineup. Right. And why was that? Because CBS's mass audience skewed older and advertisers had discovered and figured out that their dollar was better served pitching people who were younger because people who are over 49, as you said, have picked their toothpaste. And advertising is all about brand switching. It's all about getting right. somebody to try something that they're not using already. And people who are 50 already know what they like and what's nonsense. And they're not going to fall for some you know, new hot pocket. But some <laughs> 22-year-old is like, hey, the new hot pocket's are out. Cheddar yeah, right. pork and sugar hot pocket. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Um, well, this all brings us to uh, uh, the new uh, a, a new release. I guess we'll have to go to entertainment release um, today or maybe late yesterday of Zach Galifianakis's weird uh, um, Funny or Die web show. Uh, and his guest was Barack Obama. And um, before we talk about it. I do want to say that if you're listening to this podcast and you are a member of Ricochet, we thank you and we welcome you and we are happy to have you along with us and happy to be members with you. If you are listening to this podcast and you are not a member of Ricochet, you have now missed lots of great conversations, lots of great podcasts, and a great a bunch of great meetups, member meetups all across the country. Um, we would like you to join uh, Ricochet, Ricochet.com uh, today, right now. Um, 
First of all, because we need your business, but also because you will, I know if you enjoy this podcast, you will enjoy being a member of the fastest growing, most literate, witty, civil conversation on the web. Um, that said, Jonah, have you seen the video? I did. I, I, I saw uh, the first 80% of it and then I had to jump off to uh, do this. So I got as far, I got, I got past him asking Barack Obama, what is it like to be the last black president? <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we have now gone to a point. So how would you? Yeah, but how do you think he did? Well, how Ooh, do I think Galifianakis did? Or no, no, Barack Obama. Obama. I think that we have gotten to a point now Uh-oh. where the president of the United States <clears throat> is willing to serve as a straight man. For a guy with a beard, because that is what that entire thing is. It's Galifianakis sort of acting like uh, Ali G and being, you know, ignorant and rude and stupid. And Obama (laughs) being like the guy, you know, who goes, oh, you, why, how dare you? And, you know, getting more and more and more angry. So basically, he's the straight man. Obama. But, but that's what it should be. I mean, I would were I giving him advice, I would say don't do the jokes. You don't you don't want the you don't want the president to be doing the jokes. You, want, I mean, the you pres- don't want the president to be the patsy. Oh, he's, he's uh, the really, president you, of the United honestly, States. Honestly, honestly, if you you saw that and you didn't think he killed, I thought he was great. I I think I I thought it was I first of all, I have a deep prejudice against this Between Two Ferns web series, which I've now seen for like three or four years. People are always sending it to me and saying, oh, watch this. It's really funny. And it's like Zach Galifianakis sitting in a chair with these two ferns on either side with a celebrity getting more and more annoyed at him. And it's the same joke over and over and over again. And so I don't think it's funny. And I don't really think he's funny, though I think he can be funny in movies. Having said that, I am sorry, but the president of the – this is part of Obama's per, extreme participation in the kind of de, taking the presidency and wringing the last drop of authority out of it until it becomes this you – know, <laughs> it's just this sort of silly joke part of you know, new media culture. And well, wait a minute. Okay. not healthy. I mean, Jonah, maybe, did you yeah. see it? Did you think he was funny? Um, I, I, I kind of agree with Rob that you want the president to be the straight guy. Um, and, uh, I laughed. I mean, I laughed at some of it. I did. It has the same problem that a lot of Saturday Night Live has, that it's actually funnier when you recount what happened than actually watching it. You know, like the premise is funny. And so when you're talking about it the next day, it sounds like it was really funny. And then you actually watch it. And the delivery is not that great, but I thought it was funny. I, I disagree. With, I kind of disagree with John. I I kind of like Between Two Ferns. I think it's really hit or miss. I think sometimes it succeeds, and sometimes it really fails. Um, but I I thought it was funny. Okay, I agree, so with, but I agree. With, I agree with John entirely. Yeah. That the burn rate on presidential dignity in this White House <laughs> is just astounding, and he he is willing. Because he thinks he's so much, he's so cool, and he's better than the job that he has. That's that his right. Cool, his coolness is more important than the institution, and he does these kinds of things. You know, interviews with I don't know Jay Z or whoever these these damn rappers are. Um, he does these things because he wants to have a cult of personality, and he and he cares less about the power and prestige of the institution itself. But you know, it's self defeating. I mean, it is self defeating in this sense, which is that. Part of the issue with the president who – and I disagree with people on the right and I've disagreed forever. I think he is very charming. I think he is a very interesting person. He does interesting things. He talks in interesting ways. He is very persuasive. Uh, I mean he's a very good speaker. He's a very good off-the-cuff person and he has a sense of humor. Having said that, his ability to persuade people, particularly people who are not already on his side, has been drained from him. And part of the reason is extreme ubiquity so that you know when he speaks, it no longer has any real um, breakout meaning. I saw uh, extreme I, I, ubiquity I've, open. I'm just, I, I just saw extreme ubiquity open for Run DMC in 1987. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Yes, they, <laughs> they, they were, they but were they've really sold out. 
<laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I, I tell the story a lot, but you know, when I I wrote speeches for Reagan at the end of his presidency, and you know, Reagan spoke four times a week, and George W. Bush spoke something like eleven or twelve times a week, and Obama does too. Uh, you know, the number of appearances, new media, this that, and you know, there is something to the there is something to the notion that. The president should keep his mouth shut and stay off stage until he wants to say something authoritative, and then it will have a very large echo effect. And Obama has participated in all sorts of ways in eliminating his own capacity to persuade. So I don't know, you know, it helps him to have a cult of personality, you know, he, it helps him for whatever it is that he wants. It does not help him institutionally as the person who is running one of the three branches of the government who can or who could, if he did it right, uh, transcend the boundaries of partisanship and all sorts of things and change the way the conversation is conducted. And he was a the major contributor to this. Everybody blames the Republicans and partisanship and all of that, but I don't think that's the case. I just think... He wore himself out with the with the American people, and that whether or not right. another president but, can bring the mystery back or you know he, speak with more authority, that's an interesting question. Right. But here's what I mean: If I go downstairs, um, there's some yeah. marvelous. Chatters. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm trying to keep my puppy occupied so she stops eating things. And <laughs> someone someone gave us this absolutely creepy. <laughs> koala bear that laughs like a small human child. Oh, wow. And every now and then you see, the, you see the dog. And it, my dog looks like a dingo. So there's a real sort of the... the dingo the, ate my baby. Dingo, dingo ate my, my baby. Kind of and I was dingo very ate dingo ate my baby. Wait, before I continue on what I was going to say was, I can't remember the movie. Did a dingo actually eat her baby? Yes. Yes. In that was it. And no one believed her. Meryl Streep right. in yeah. an Australian woman in the Outback. Yeah. And, and no one believed that a dingo ate... Yeah, no one believed her. Yes. And yet, no, she went on – it's a real story. She went on trial uh, for murder, for murdering right. her own child, and, and, and she, was, she was acquitted. Okay. Well, thank, th- th- thank you for clarifying that. I, was, I always wondered that, if whether she, a dingo did eat her baby or – anyway. What, speaking of dingoes and babies, there are a bunch of babies down in the lobby of the Ace Hotel. And they are all uh, on their laptops, and they're probably all watching. They've probably all seen – this uh, Funny or Die video. Uh, Barack Obama needs those people, all those people downstairs and all those other people roughly that age cohort to uh, sign up for Obamacare or it's a giant failure. So isn't it smart that he did this? No, because they're not going to sign up for Obamacare because he did Between Two Ferns. They're going to sign up for Obamacare if it's in their interest to do so. And so far, and it's not. he has not made the sale that it is in their interest to do so. Because but isn't that, they're going to pay yeah. more than they would have paid otherwise for health care, much of which they do not need. So in that sense, their lack of institutional faith and their la- and their and their nihilism or whatever it is that is, you know, it ends up being totally Smart. in the service of their own self-interest. And, so but, and they, isn't, he's not going to he's not going to gull them. I mean, th- this is not this is not like buying one form of toothpaste or other toothpaste costs. $4 a tube. This is a question of whether you're going to buy something that gives you a $6,000 deductible. You're going to spend $2,000 a year on something that you then have to spend $6,000 just to start collecting. You know? All right. Okay. I, all right. I, I mean, I agree. But then is this the final uncoolification of Barack Obama, his own self-uncoolification? If he can't get the, his most devoted followers to do the thing that would save his presidency, right? I mean, it- no, they saved his presidency. They voted for him in 2012. That that is the salvation that they gave him. They went once again. They went from 60 40 or something like that. Although, here's a fascinating thing: there is again a poll that came out at part of that millennial poll and some other things. And do you know that in 2012, first time voters who were 18 and 19 years old. In other words, that they couldn't have voted in 2008, voted 57% for Romney. That's people who were 18 or 19 in 2012. 
Is that real? Is that really true? Seventy, uh, 57%. I, I'll find the site while we are – while we are. Uh, so, John, uh, all these colleges you're going to, you're doing, some, you're doing something good. Yeah, it's, it's all me. I should ask for a bigger <laughs> fee. I, look, I, I agree and disagree with, with both of you guys on some of this stuff. I mean, first of all, the uncoolification thing, I think as we all know, there's always room to get more uncool. Right, I mean, there's really no that's floor true. of uncoolness. No, no, exactly. That's very true. That's very true. And um, and second of all, I were, I mean, I agree entirely with John. You know, I mean, I started writing in 2009 about how David Axelrod had the more cowbell theory of the Obama presidency that every single problem could be fixed with simply by um, Obama giving another speech. And so every problem meant you know more cowbell, which meant more Obama talking. And so he gave 52 speeches. His first year on healthcare alone, and here's where I disagree with John. He's not persuasive. I mean, the, yeah. this is an empirical question. I think he is persuasive to a certain bunch of people, certain kind of people. But in terms of as a politician, there is zero evidence, and I, I, I'm open to correction on this. But there is zero evidence, and I, I, I am aware of, of Barack Obama moving the American people on any significant policy question ever. And yet we are constantly told he's this great orator, he's very persuasive, but where it matters for a politician in terms of persuading the public to agree with him on something, he is terrible, or at least ineffectual. And that is something that is sort of this great overlooked fact of his entire presidency. Mm -hmm. He's great getting people to vote for him, but on no no policy question. To actually do something. Uh Well, because because the interesting thing is that, you know, what was his his great promise in 2008 was nothing specific. It was, I, we are the change. We are the ones we have been waiting for. Uh, It was a, you know, it was a big blob of nothing. And so it has no, you know, it has no policy implications, really. And uh, unlike the dingo that ate, ate, you know, that ate ate your baby, uh, we we all love that dog, though. Great, great pictures on on Twitter. Now, I do have to say that the Glop Culture podcast is brought to you by Encounter Books. And this week's feature title is one near and dear to my heart. It is Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes by Michael Rubin. Michael Rubin is a daily contributor to Commentary's blog. Uh, one major chapter of this book appeared in commentary as our cover story in 2010 called Taking Tea with the Taliban. Uh, it's a remarkable book and it couldn't be more timely because what Michael argues in Dance with the Devil is the world has never been as dangerous as it is now. Rogue regimes, governments and groups which eschew diplomatic normality, sponsor terrorism and proliferate nuclear weapons are challenging the United States around the globe and the American response of first resort is to talk with such rogues rather than confront them on the theory that it never hurts to talk to enemies. But seldom has conventional wisdom ever been so wrong. Because while it is true that sanctions and military force come at high costs, case studies in this book examining the history of American diplomacy with North Korea, Iran, Iraq, Libya, and the Taliban in this great essay that we published, Taking Tea with the Taliban, demonstrate that problems with both strategies do not make engagement with rogue regimes a cost-free option. And I see that Zoe agrees there in the background. In fact, (laughs) rogue regimes have one thing in common. They pretend to be aggrieved in order to put Western diplomats, us, on the defensive. Whether in Pyongyang, Tehran, or Islamabad, rogue leaders understand that the rest is now rewarding bluster with incentives. And that for the State Department, the process of holding talks is often deemed more important than results. And we can see that, of course, in what we see going on with with Iran, which is uh, continuing to advance its nuclear program while claiming to be talking about dismantling it. So to get Michael's very important book for 15% off the list price, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. We thank EncounterBooks for sponsoring Glop Culture. And this really is a very, very important book. And, uh, you know, here we are uh, with one of those great, wonderful negotiations having taken place with Russia and Syria. And guess what? Syria was going to dismantle its chemical weapons and 4.7% of Syria's chemical weapons have been dismantled. And the deadline is Saturday. <laughs> yeah. He's going to – Obama will appear you know on the happen? ferns. 95.3% of Syria's chemical weapons will be gone by Saturday. I'm sure, right? Because, you know, Russia 
really has a great invested interest right now in helping the United States. Well, we hit the reset the world of Sears. We hit the reset button. Russia's about to, you know, is about to annex a portion of a sovereign, uh, a sovereign neighboring country. Uh, we're not going to do much about it except bluster and complain. And you know, hey, whatever, but I mean, whatever, because but the a, president is going on between two ferns. But, God but he's bless gonna, him. He's going to have to do that for for Iran too, right? He's got to do that for Syria. He's got to do that for everybody. It's appeal to these weird little niche populations. But do, do you, think, have to, you have to admit you would like to see Vladimir Putin on between two ferns <laughs> and have him. Have him kill, kill. Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> kill him. Yeah. He, he was, I, I get the joke. <laughs> now, you know, I, I keep I keep talking about these you know interesting polls that say interesting and surprising things, right? So yeah, you're kind other, of like poster day. You're you're the know, uh, but, but the stats was, guy. Here was something from Stuart Rothenberg in Roll Call just yesterday, which is. We all know that the, Democrat, the Republican Party's numbers are in the, they're in the sewer, right? They're terrible. Uh, you know, 60% of the country disapproves of Republicans and only 30% like them. And de- for the Democratic Party, it's more like 40% like and 50% dislike. So the Republican Party is in much worse shape than the Democratic Party, right? Uh, maybe not because here's what's interesting. Independent voters – in 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 the in the latest CBS News New York Times poll, give equal positive and negative ratings to Republicans and Democrats. Thirty percent positive, sixty percent negative. So, Democrats r- say nice things about their own party, fifty percent to thirty percent or something. The problem with Republican poll numbers is Republicans. Republicans, self-described Republicans polled, Mm -hmm. are telling pollsters that they disapprove of the Republican Party. And Rothenberg discerns two keys to this, one of which is Tea Partiers, who don't like the establishment, and the establishment, which doesn't like Tea Partiers. And each of them thinks that the other has the upper hand in the party and is blaming them and says that that they disapprove. What does this tell you? It tells you that the Republican Party, oddly, is in much better shape going into the 2014 elections than you than people might think. Because self-described Republicans will, in the end, come home and vote Republican. That's what happened in 2012. It happened in 2008. Republicans voted 90 to 93 percent for McCain and Romney and only 7 percent for Obama. And that there is this you know, mythos that a lot of Republicans stayed home in 2012. It's not true. With the exception of southwestern Ohio, it is not true. Romney got more votes than – got a million more votes than McCain. That is not what happened. The t- Democratic turnout machine was just more effective. So what does this tell you? It tells you that going into 2012, independents are not disapproving of the Republican Party worse than they disapprove of the Democratic Party. And that Republicans, that if you if you take out this factor of Republicans being self-critical, they are in better shape than Democrats are going into 2014. And this is not from me. This is not from some Republican. This is Stu Rothenberg, a respected mm-hmm. analysis who tilts liberal. And it's pretty interesting, I think. You guys? Sounds plausible to me. I mean, I've always thought the, the independent stuff was bogus because you've, you've seen this huge spike in independence yeah. and everyone attributes it to disillusionment with Washington and all that. No, it's that the Tea Parties, you took out 20 to 30, whatever the number is, percent of of self-ID'd Republicans now have something else to call themselves. And, you know, and so I, mean, I find it utterly plausible. Um on its face. Well, yeah, I mean, the Tea Party, when, uh, the, the various Tea Party, I mean, there, there are t- 20 of them and all run by, you know, shyster guys who like kind of collected, who named an, a, uh, an organization and then called it a Tea Party. But the actual people, the rank and file who identify with Tea Parties were traditionally, I mean, some staggering percentage of them, uh, Republican primary voters. That's what we used to call them, <laughs> Republican primary voters. They were the ones, Republicans who voted in the primary. They're actually quite loyal Republicans. Um, they may have been unhappy with the direction of their party, but they they did come back and vote for it. I mean, the more interesting thing for me right now is the way is all the people downstairs 
uh, where I'm uh, currently I'm, I'm, I'm unable to sit there. There's so many of them down there um, working on their laptops is how there is a, 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 a kind of a, a whatever, a fragment, but really significant of millennials who are entrepreneurial and entrepreneurs and who don't expect ever to work at a big company and don't expect to have somebody take care of them that way. Now, maybe that's bred out of cynicism or, or not, but it's certainly realistic and a realistic view of the future. And that the, those those seem to me to be natural Republican voters, whether they are now or not. They soon will be if they maintain that kind of entrepreneurial um, activity because even I have a friend of mine who was a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and he's very liberal. He's very progressive. He loves Obama. Uh, you know, he's big, big, major investor. He's invested in a company called Uber, which is this taxi thing that's taken over big cities. Um, and he was complaining about how hard it was to get Uber in Washington, D.C. because of all the regulation, the government regulation and the uh, and the, the cozy relationship between the, the taxi trade groups and, and the city government. And, uh, and he was acting as if this is an astonishing thing to have happened. You know? And how, how, how could they? Why would they stifle innovation, he kept saying. And, um, well, you know, welcome to, the, welcome to the real world. That's what progressive politics gets you. Uh, that's who you voted for. That's who you donated money for. That's who you were whatever the, you know, the equivalent of a ranger for. Um, and I, I think it was a big eye-opening moment for him. Right. Well, I, the big question then is – what is it that those people need to uh, reduce their extreme disaffection with the GOP, which is real? And my view is uh, it is not that the party needs to be less socially conservative, but you know, maybe uh, talking about how uh, women can prevent themselves from getting pregnant when they're raped and and talking about the evils of contraception, maybe if you do less of that, uh, and give the other side uh, grounds on which to make a uh, you know a very uh, thin but powerful case uh, that you're a bunch of you know 19th century nut jobs. Maybe if you don't do that, you know you might uh, file off some of the rough edges that make people like that look at the GOP and say, "I can't vote for those people. They're crazy and they hate me." They hate people like me. I was at um, AEI's World Forum in Sea Island this weekend, which is why I didn't go to CPAC. Um, Let's put it this way. It's one of the reasons why I didn't go to CPAC. (laughs) And and, it's completely off the record, so I can't, like, name names or any of that kind of stuff. But I think I I can get away with saying one of the things I think was really interesting – just picking up in conversations with some very, very wealthy, influential people, some of whom um, were Obama supporters at one point and have started to move over. The the effects of what's going on with de Blasio and charter schools in New York is so right. Right. galling to some of these people because it, it, it runs counter to – Everything that they think that like, liberalism is supposed to be about, and it's the exact it's the exact same phenomenon as the Uber thing, or the food truck stuff, or a, you know, or la- last month the National Academy of Pediatricians came out against these uh, quick medical clinics that they have in places like Walmart and CVS because it contradicts their um, what they call the uh, medical home philosophy. In other words, it takes away their customers and. Um, but the New York thing with de Blasio where you're telling high-scoring, high-achieving, poor kids from Harlem that they can't have their school because it affects the vested interests of right. the teachers' unions is one of these sort of teaching moments. And it's something that you know conservatives really need to come to grips with is that Barack Obama and now de Blasio, but liberalism generally in the last five years has done a much better job than we have in discrediting liberalism. You know, the Obamacare, yeah, the Obamacare website, the, the teacher union stuff, the failures of the stimulus, the failures of the economy, the idiocy of a lot of the global warming stuff, um, that has done more to convince independents that yeah. they didn't get what they thought they were going to get than anything we could say from the sidelines. 
Right. And then what happens on the right? What happens on the right is that for perverse incentive reasons, the much of the debate during the 2012 presidential primary centered on nonsense, centered on things that do not have to do with these key questions about America's future, about the expansion of opportunity, about the expansion of freedom. We ended, there, were, there were fights and arguments about contraception. Contraception. Right. Contraception. <laughs> How yeah. crazy do you have to be to have a fight about contraception? I mean, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not going to speak here in offensive, you know, to say anything against anybody who for deep religious reasons opposes contraception, but it is an extreme minority view in the United States to oppose contraception. Including the on the right. That it should, mean, right. And the notion that it should have taken up two well, weeks why did it? of oxygen. I mean, but why because did it? Rick Santorum, who is a Catholic and who believes he is a philosopher, believed that he had something deep and profound to say about the cost of contraception uh, as a, you know, as a social, as a social ill uh, in, in creating, you know, a more sexualized culture and a less family-driven culture. And it is not, by the way, that that argument is not without uh, merit in some larger sense. It is that it is lunatic to conduct it as part of a larger drive to get votes to make a case for a national political party which is trying to redirect the country's larger effort and to re and to turn the ship of state away from the direction in which it is going and that was the you know that is the extreme individualism of the republican party in its worst form where people say you know what? I'm just going to run for president and say whatever because why not? Because <laughs> well, what, I can get myself on Fox News and who knows? Maybe I'll win. You know, well, who, who knows? Donald Trump will run. Herman Cain will run. This one will run. That one will run. Fortunately, it would appear that there are too many serious politicians who really look at 2016 and say, you know, I may be able to get to be president here, and I'm not. You know, we're not going to leave this field yeah. to a bunch of you know lunatics. That that is unlikely to happen. But you never know, you know, can come out of some look right now. A Republican is retiring and there is a nut bar who is leading in the Georgia Republican race uh, uh, against uh, two people who are not nut bars. And that there is a seat that will be lost if this guy, Paul Brune, wins the nomination and he may win the nomination and that will make. Republicans winning the Senate harder. And that is that race. And if he gets in, he nationalizes the Democratic message about Republicans still being the same lunatics that they were in Senate races in 10 and 12. So, you know, this is politics. It's the nature of the way these things work. But the Republican Party is now divided between a really, really powerful message about Obama's uh, about the damage that Obama has done and about the question about how to change the American ship of state and re- right. redirect it so that we can get back on a path of opportunity, do something about opportunity and growth for the poor, um, you know, and, and, and eliminate barriers, you know, that are making it impossible for the middle classes, you know, incomes to rise. And we're going to end up having f- the same kind of crazy fights about nothing that give the Democrats – look hey squirrel possibilities with the voters to say these people are not you these people are against you they're a bunch of crazy people so that's an interesting fight this year and and in 2016 and uh I'm sorry because now people are going to get really mad at me. No, no, I, I, gonna, I Twitter. You're going to see this. Oh, you're an establishment. The establishment. I know. Well, but the, but there is something about the establishment. Mean, I guess the problem for us was that we didn't have that many accomplished folks running in 2012 to make it seem like. Uh, it, it it was a fight, you know. There weren't were, 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 you had a, you know you had a failed senator, and then you had a, a governor, uh, and that was pro- probably about it. Uh, the rest of them seemed kind of small bore. Um, I think 2016 is really interesting. I mean, look, you look. I mean, I mean, I'm already sort of like enthralled by Scott Walker, which may be I may be disappointed in the future, but who knows? He he seems like a cool dude and a smart guy, uh, and it also feels like 
the younger they are and the more um, – the younger the politicians are and the younger the administrators are, the more uh, savvy they are about the um, – uh, about retail politics and what it takes. I mean, I've always that's why I've always pre- preferred governors to senators because I think governors just in general know a little bit more about how to go around a country and and win votes. And Scott but Walker I mean, can claim that he has a billion dollar surplus. Yeah, and and, and, and he's a tax cutter. Tax cutter with a billion dollar surplus. So yeah. we 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 only have time for uh, one more topic, and I think we should probably go to pop culture. So let us. Uh, here's I have two questions for you guys. One, uh, House of Cards. Have you seen it? I'm I'm way behind in it. I'm I'm about three or four episodes into the second season. And Rob, have you watched it? I haven't seen any of it. Okay, so let's not talk about House of Cards. Well, no, there's, there's too much. But there's too much good stuff on. You can't. How can you? I mean, it's on the. It's in the queue, but I don't. You know. Yeah, it's like it's I, like I, I'm only Barrow. on the third episode the, of True Detective too. Yeah, I'm not well, even now, I'm behind on that. Well, we're now in the uh, we've now achieved total Yogi Berra culture culture shock, which is that you know uh, that place is so popular nobody goes there anymore. There's so much stuff. I can <laughs> yeah, see. I don't watch any of it. I can't watch any of it. Well, the thing about it is like that's too good. You uh, that that is ultimately one of the drawbacks of appointment television. You know that's what we were all striving for out in L.A. is the appointment TV. I want you to make an appointment to to make a, a actual effort to watch my show. I want you to DVR it, and I want you to buy the whatever, download it, whatever, whatever it takes. I need you to like feel compelled to keep up. But you know they they, they and so so there's 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 forty four channels now uh, producing scripted television. Um, each one of them could produce something that was really interesting. There's no, I mean, Hatfields and McCoys on the History Channel was really good. Uh, there's lots of good TV. The one thing they're not making any more of is days of the week or hours of the day, and so it's all pushing up against each other. And everybody goes, "Oh, I like to." I, people now binge view, but that you know that you still only have that many hours. You can only do well, that know, many you know, things. You know who does have the time to watch these things? All the people in the lobby of your hotel. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. No, it's true. Like you hear from this people like I binge viewed that and that and that. And like, well, I guess you can do that if you don't have a job. Uh, that that and you can comment on. <laughs> you can you know comment on Reddit, I suppose. But the the but but that is the problem. Pretty soon, people are gonna have to have to like face that 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 in fact now uh, something that's very popular in Hollywood is to say it's a limited. A limited series like True Detective, so that you feel like okay, if I get into this, it's going to be over, right? And there was a very good and 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 it, that's an important signal to send to the audience that there's going to be closure here. Uh, there was a show on AMC called The Killing, which was based on a very good Scandinavian show, and it was actually a pretty interesting show. It was like a, going to spend a season investigating one murder and all the various uh, tributaries into that, and all the different intertwining threads of who was the victims and what happens to them and all that stuff. And um, they did a very, very stupid thing, which is at the end of the season, they didn't tell you who did it. It was a cliffhanger and you had to wait for the next season to find out who did it. And the audience said, well, you know what? Go to hell. I'm not watching this. And the show never recovered. It never recovered. You know, um, this just reminds me of the, uh, interesting night in that talk about cultural differences so 34 35 years ago in 1979 there was a night of television a sunday night of television which was the ultimate in pre vhs dvr everything when uh on this saturday night gone with the wind was on cbs one flew over the cuckoo's nest which had won five oscars four years earlier was on nbc and this original movie uh, about Elvis uh, making his 1968 uh, TV special starring Kurt Russell was on ABC. And the American people had to choose which they were going to watch. Um, and they ended up choosing Elvis, which was right. very interesting and was a sort of revolutionary thing. Um, but if you think about it, that was a night in which television punished the American people because yeah. they they went to war with each other and they made it impossible for people to you know at a time of scarcity they made scarcity a weapon basically but and it now, always was it always was it, right 
but but that was a very rare that was a rare moment and it was sort of this moment that that made the case for the VCR you know it's like you can't do this to me I I should be able to watch Gone with I shouldn't have to wait seven years to watch Gone with the Wind if I want to see this Elvis thing that's not fair now before <laughs> well, you're still you're still hurt by this. Um, uh, our, our our wonderful producer Scott Immergut makes the point that we need to take take uh, as as the conclusion here, we need to take note of the death of of Harold Ramis, the oh, yeah. uh, actor, writer, director, um, uh, and uh, Jonah and I have both written extensively on the wonders and glories of his masterpiece uh, Groundhog Day. Um, but you know his 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 history his credits are simply astonishing. I mean, they, you know, they sort of ran out of steam. But you know, the guy who starred in Ghostbusters, starred in Stripes, wrote Animal House, wrote Stripes, wrote co-wrote Ghostbusters, uh, and uh, made Caddyshack and co-wrote Caddyshack, and then eventually co-wrote and directed Groundhog Day, which is you know very possibly the best. American movie of the last 25 years. There's an argument to be made that it's the best yeah, movie. Yeah, I think it's a, definitely a classic American movie of all time. Uh, you know, I heard a wonderful story about him from uh, um, Brian Doyle Murray, who the actor who's in my show I'm doing now on TBS, and and uh, he's been a couple another series we did together, and and, and just a terrific guy. He's Bill Murray's uh, older brother, and um and he wrote he ran Caddyshack. the Caddyshack. He ran the Caddyshack. Yeah, Caddyshack. and he wrote the, and he wrote the he wrote the the script, uh-huh. uh, and when, after Animal House, uh, I guess I think it was Universal called in Harold Ramis and his then I guess writing partner, who, I forget who it was, and they said, "What else you got? We need we need something fast. Um, you guys are hot. You're so hot right now." And Harold Ramis sort of pitched him a few ideas, and they said, "Yeah, we don't. Um, we're not crazy about any of those, but let's keep talking." And then Harold said, "Well, you know, my friend Brian Murray is writing a uh, uh, a script. Uh, uh, told me about a, a story he wants to do about this." And he pitched it to them, and it was Caddyshack. And they said, yes, green light, we're making that. And then Harold Ramis had to call Brian Murray and say, hey, you remember that thing you said you were going to do? I just sold it. You have to do it now. <laughs> and um, and 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 uh, Brian said it was, it was like it was rare that people do something that nice in Hollywood, rare that anyone would ever bother to like remember something that you told him and – um, and he was always grateful to that. And he, he said he was not only he, – he was a wonderful guy, I think. And you can kind of tell that by the movies, which have this – which are, are, are sweet. They're, they're, they're sweet comedies. They're not – I mean even the, the Way Out ones are still have an element up to them, a core that's incredibly human. And then you, and then you get to the masterpiece of, of, of Groundhog Day, which is really um, one – I mean it's Capra. Capra S definitely, without a doubt. It's it's as good as the best Capra, better than most Capra, better than most um, uh, so-called masterpieces of American cinema. It's a it's a brilliant picture, and it, it you know look if you only make one picture in your life and it's Groundhog Day, that's enough. But uh, he made more than that, so that's pretty spectacular. You know, uh, Rob, you and I were talking about how uh, class is a very interesting. An undercovered topic in American popular culture, and Caddyshack, interestingly, is a movie about class. It's about a working class kid who is trying to get himself a scholarship to get out uh, of the, you know, of the house that he's living in with his seven siblings and his, you know, working class uh, parents. And he basically has to, and you know, there's him, and then there's this, you know, rich wastrel uh, trust trust. You know, Trustafarian, played by by Chevy Chase, whom he has to team up with, and this nouveau riche, pretty Jewish guy, you know, who who uh, who offends the old wasp head of the club, and there's a lot of class comedy in there, and it right. it, it, it is handled very lightly, um, and and without a lot of uh, vulgarity. There's other vulgarity in the movie, um, but it really gave a movie like Caddyshack, which is a very shaggy piece of work, you know, and I, I the one time I met Ramis when I was a very young man and we were talking about it and he said, oh, my God, we did so much cocaine on that movie. I can barely remember, you know, what happened from one day to the next. <laughs> I was really shocked because I was like 20 years old. My my best friend from high school was the son of a comedy film producer or who, who had become a comedy film producer. And so I went out to L.A. To spend a week at their house on Cannon Drive, and then 
he was working in an office with where Harold Ramis was down the hall. And he and and, and uh, Ramus was very nice and very pleasant. But this was like the really you made a movie on cocaine? How could you do such a thing? You know that's that's me as the non generational <laughs> as, as the person who hated generational politics. But uh, but it stands up as a as a real you know yeah. as an interesting example of that. So and uh, Jonah Jonah as one of the foremost uh, exponents of the glories of Groundhog Day. What what is it that you think makes it such a masterpiece? Um, well, because it's layered, you know. I mean, the, the, other than the flaw of having Annie McDowell in it. Um, oh, I loved her in it. I loved her in it. Yeah, but go I, ahead. Okay, so, um, uh, but if I if I made not because you know, look, I mean, I wrote a cover story for National Review of all places on how I think it's one of the greatest films of all time and all that. And you know, uh, when Charles Murray was once asked when he wrote a book called Human Accomplishment, is there any evidence that there's any any creative oomph left in us since Aristotle. And he brings up Groundhog Day as an example of how think, all hope is not lost. Um, and I agree with all of that. But uh, two movies that got almost no discussion um, in all the Harold Ramis stuff that are near and dear to my heart. I mean, I think Groundhog Day is definitely the pinnacle. But um, you, you didn't hear much about Stripes, but you heard some. But you heard nothing about Back to School, which he was one of the writers on, um, which I think right. is actually a great movie. Oh, it's um, a great movie. And it, you know, and it gets, a, it also, it sort of, it does class as well, um, but from, you know, a different angle. Um, but, you know, even Thornton Mellon in, in Back to School comes from, you know, he comes from nothing and is a self-made man and he never loses that sort of touch. Um, and what was the other one that I wanted to mention? Oh, and Meatballs. Right, which he wrote, which is you know yeah. one of the you know I mean, I mean I, I don't think a week goes by where I'm not quoting you know Jerry Aldini promising that when you Jerry to, Aldini when you go to Camp Camp Tomahawk you get to hunt and kill your own bear. Um, and, um, <laughs> I'm Jerry Aldini. <laughs> um, I just have to mention that I went to the camp where Meatballs was filmed, Camp White Pine in Halliburton, Ontario. I have to mention that. And I also have to mention – I did indeed. And I also have to mention – Were those happy times for you, John? No, no. But it was a great (laughs) thing. My other favorite story about back to school is the, the single greatest piece of editorial advice ever given for which somebody was paid tens of thousands of dollars, came uh, from the uh, script doctor, Jerry Belson, who was also one of the guiding lights behind the greatest TV series of all time, Jonah and I agree, The Odd Couple, uh, with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. Uh, Jerry Belson was asked to read an early script of Back to School and see what didn't make sense. They couldn't figure out what to do with it, and it didn't make sense. And he gave them three words of advice that I think stand as the greatest editorial guidance in the history of editorial guidance he said make rodney rich Mm -hmm. that was all he said Mm -hmm. and that broke the code and so it became the story of this 50 year old rich guy who decides to go to college or to make a find his way back to his son right Um, and 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 was a free loving free wheeling rich guy not a tight ass rich guy but a fun rich guy and it changed everything, and it, it remains, uh, you know, it remains one of the highlights of the 1980s. That's a great script. That's a great script note. Make Rodney. Isn't it? My, um, <laughs> you never get them like that. They're never. They're never that good. Yeah. Jerry was actually uh, wrote, wrote Cheers for, uh, for a long time. It was a consultant for a long time, and, and he gave the the funniest um, thank you speech on his last. I think his last season when he was going to do something else, or when he was just retiring. I can't remember. He. Um, uh, they had a big dinner um, for him, this giant party, and uh, uh, he stood up to say a few words and you know, clink glasses, and he raised a toast and he said, uh, "Thank you for the money," and he sat down. <laughs> uh, you know, the funny thing about him was that he wasn't that. You know, his own personal credits yeah. aren't that great. This is where it's interesting. You know, he was somebody who worked well with others, uh, but he made a couple of pretty lousy movies on his own. And he was a genuinely great script doctor and obviously a great consultant and sometimes, uh, let's say, 
bravo to the editors like me who do the thankless job of making people like Jonah who write for me and Rob who has a fantastic piece in the upcoming edition of Commentary on uh, the new biography of uh, Portrait of Johnny Carson by his lawyer Henry Bushkin uh, has a great piece in the upcoming commentary, which will be out uh, next week. So, gentlemen, uh, who has gigs? Who wants to talk about gigs? Uh, well, that was you just gave me. You gave away my gig. I'm, I'm appearing in the pages of Commentary Magazine. There you go. I got, uh, I, I got two things. One, um, I couldn't get the story in, but a friend of mine, who when he was in college in Emory, uh, Kurt Vonnegut came and spoke, and everyone lined up to get their copies of Slaughterhouse-Five signed, and he waited patiently for an hour to get his copy of Back to School signed, the DVD. <laughs> Do you and, remember what that's a reference to? That's that's where yes. Kurt Vonnegut writes, ghost writes a paper for Rodney Dangerfield on Kurt Vonnegut and gets, and a, gets, like a, yeah, that's right. gets and, a beat. Yeah, that's right. And the check is canceled. Um, yes. So, uh, and then what I got coming up, I'm going to be an Let's not be too disparaging. Um, I'm going to be debating Eugene Robinson at Miami University of Ohio on March 19th. It would be very nice if anybody in the area could come and uh, be a friendly face. (laughs) Yeah, you'll need that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, will be in uh, Las Vegas at the end of March speaking before the Republican Jewish Coalition uh, at the uh, fabulous Venetian Hotel um, but I don't think that's really all that open. Uh, so if you're a Republican and a Jew and in a coalition, maybe you can come. But otherwise, and you like craps. And you like craps. <laughs> you like circus. And of course, I will double up and make a rare visit to the giggles in in uh, Lake of Fire uh, outside of uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> As opposed the original to giggles. The original, the original giggles. The er giggles, as opposed to my usual giggles in West Nyack, New York. So uh, thank you guys very much. And Fellas. we will uh, we will uh, reconvene to discuss more television and tell you millennials to get off our lawn. <laughs> <laughs> see, see you in a little while. See ya. Join the conversation.